If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 11. We're looking at Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Luke chapter 11. Uh, we're going to focus on verse 3 today, but let's read uh, uh, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us pray like Christ. Lord, that you would give us wisdom into our own hearts as uh, we consider our prayers uh, and most importantly, Lord, I pray that uh, we would glorify you in our prayers. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider prayer, I want to start by asking a few questions. Uh, the first question is real simple. It is, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you talk to God? Second question is, uh, when you pray, do you pray like Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Uh, we live in a time where it's kind of like, as, as long as you pray, that's good. However you do it, it doesn't matter. It is true there's not a formula, in a sense, certain big words we use, but there is a way in which we ought to pray. That's what Jesus is teaching us. He's not teaching us a prayer, but how to pray. He's given us, in a sense, an outline or a, a flavor of how our prayers are supposed to be. In fact, the Bible says we can pray wrongly. In James uh, 4.3, uh, James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's a way that we can pray to reveal that we actually are loving the world more than God. And James says, God is good in that He doesn't give you your idolatry. In fact, if He does turn you over to it, to love the world, it's actually an act of judgment. So, do you pray? And if you pray, do you pray as Christ has taught us to pray. In 1 John 5.14 we read, And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So we're to pray according to God's will. In other parts of the Scripture it says we're to pray in the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? That means we're to pray 
the will of the Spirit of God, to pray the will of God, to pray according to the Spirit's words, the Scripture. It's not some mystical experience to pray in the Spirit, but it's rather to pray according to the Spirit's will. Uh, what we've already looked at in the Lord's Prayer, just by way of uh, remembering, Jesus began by saying, here's how you pray. You begin by saying, Father, our Father. This was shocking that we could consider Christ's Father our Father, that we could address Him as children. And then these two petitions, hallowed be your name. May you be glorified. May you be set apart. The flavor of our prayers are that God be glorified. That His name be made much of. And then your kingdom come. That God's will be done. That Christ's kingdom come. That everyone would recognize Christ as King. And we talked about how to pray this way, to have this flavor of prayer. We need to look up, kind of zoom our eyes up, rather than selfishly just look in. We're praying that God be glorified. As a child looks up to his father, having all the needs uh, provided for by the Father. There's a looking up. There's a zooming out, gaining perspective. We can pray where we only see the scary details of life. We get zoomed in. That's when we start thinking God's not good. God, you know, We start believing wrong things about God when we lose perspective. We zoom out. We see the cross. We see the love of God, what He's done for sinners on the cross. We zoom out and we're able to look forward to where we're going. That these present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. We're to pray with the biblical perspective. And when you look at the Lord's Prayer, you might see it as, okay, the first part's God-centered. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then it gets self-centered, you might think. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into uh, temptation. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. So now these are the requests. But actually, the beginning of the prayer is the flavor of the prayer. And even these requests are to be asked for in such a way that glorifies God. So the charge of this message is glorify God by praying, give us each day our daily bread. Why does asking this glorify God? Now, I'm going to go through a lot of text this morning. You're probably not going to be able to keep up so I've listed them in your notes so you don't have to frantically try to jot them down. But there is some text, if you have your Bibles, that, where we're going to spend a little longer there. Uh, and one of those texts is at the beginning here, Psalm 50. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. 
And here's what I want to consider. The reason why praying, give us this day our daily bread, the reason why that isn't selfish, but actually glorifying to God is revealed in Psalm 50. We're going to start in verse 7. Here the psalmist says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I'll testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's saying, I realize you're religious. You're doing all this ceremony. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? There's a way you can tr worship God as though God's lacking and we got to give Him something. He's saying, oh no, that's not how it is. All that's mine. If I'm hungry, I'm never going to ask you for food. But then He says this in verse 14, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You see it? When you come to me for your needs, you glorify me. Because God is the giver. When we ask God for our daily bread, we glorify Him because where does our daily bread come from? From Him. Another example of this is in Isaiah 46. Uh, you can turn here if you want with me. Isaiah 46 Israel has begun to worship the idols of Babylon. And two of those idols uh, are called Bel and Nebo. And God mocks the worship of idols. Here's what He says. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So you have these two big idols. There's a bunch of little idols made in their image. You know, idols that craftsmen have made out of bronze or whatever. And these idols of God are born as burden on weary beasts. It's heavy on their shoulders. And then he says, they stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. The idols can be stolen by the enemy. 
He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from your birth and carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry and will save. God says every other idol out there is born by those who make them, have to carry the weight of them. But God says, no, I made you. From your birth, I carried you. To your old age, I will carry you. This is what it means that God is God. That God is the one who provides for us. To ask from God is to glorify God. In Acts 17.24, Luke writes, The God who made the world and everything in it, this is Paul speaking, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Everything we have is from God. So what does it mean when Jesus says, when you pray, when you're praying literally, that's what it is in the Greek, there's this expectation that we'll continually be praying and our prayers need to be like, give us each day our daily bread. Does he just mean that we only ask for bread? Gluten-free stuff we don't ask for from God. No, that's obviously not what he's saying. Leon Morris says it's a request for the basic necessities of life, not luxuries. So when you pray, ask for the basic necessities for life. John MacArthur writes, the substance of this request, bread, encompasses all the basic temporal requirements of life, such as food, housing, clothing, health care, and perhaps even government that provides peace and order in society. So when you pray, the everyday needs that you need Ask for them from God because it glorifies Him. We are 100% in need of God all the time. What does the Bible say of mankind? We're grass, here for a moment, then gone. We're a vapor that vanishes Isaiah 22 or 222 says stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for what account is he meaning what is man except the one thing he's been given one breath in his nostril and then he needs another breath from God why do we look up to man why do we think so much of ourselves and forget to pray and remember that God provides all things to us. 
God is the one who provides. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapter 6. And all of chapter 6, part of chapter 7, a little bit of chapter 5, I would argue that the main thrust of Jesus' sermon is to convince His listeners that His Father is generous and gives generously. That He's the one that provides. When you don't pray, you don't think you need God. You forget Him. The request give give us this day, reflects a child's total dependence on their parents. A little baby will not survive. Even when a little baby wants milk and is saying, give me, give me, totally dependent on the mother, this is a prayer that begins with Father. A recognition of how helpless we are in our need for Him. In fact, Jesus said, uh, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus says, unless you realize the fact that you're totally dependent on God, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 6, 7, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, he says, And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Here's why. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then he says, pray then like this. Now, get this. If you, if you only leave with one thing, get this. The Father perfectly knows what you need. Before you ever ask, the Father knows what you need. Now, you and I don't always know what we need. And that could cause us to have all sorts of anxiety, but there's comfort in knowing that before we even think to ask for a need, God perfectly knows everything we need and we don't carry Him, He carries us. From the time we were born to our old age when we have gray hair, God carries us. He knows what we need. David recognize this. At the end of David's life, towards the end of his life, in Psalm 37, verse 23, just listen to this. Here's what David says. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. So just think of this. The steps of a man are established, are secured by the Lord. The Lord, uh, are when He delights in His way, Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. So yes, there will be stumbling, but then here's his final verdict. 
I've been young, and now I've been old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging bread, begging for bread. He is ever lending generously. His children become a blessing. David says, as I look, I've yet to find the man who truly knows the Lord to say, the Lord has not been there for me. A few verses later, in uh, our earlier, in verse 17 of the same psalm, Psalm 37, he says, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. Solomon says a similar thing. Proverbs 10.3 The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but He thwarts the craving of the wicked. In Psalm 84.11 the psalmist writes, For the Lord God is sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord of hosts Blessed is the one who trusts in you. I wonder if you believe that, that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, those who trust him. Do you believe that God knows your needs? That he's the one caring for you? You're not actually caring for yourself? God cares about little things, and He especially cares about you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 6 once. Look at verse 25. This once again is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where I've argued that the main thrust of this sermon, or at least half of the sermon, is that its readers, those who are listening to the sermon, know that the Father is good. Here's what he says in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now think of his argument. The most insignificant living thing, little tiny birds, the fa- your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Uh, They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus looks out at the people and says, you doubt my Father's goodness. You... You have little faith that my Father cares about you. And then he says, 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, He knows what we need. And then He ends with this, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness in all these things will be added to you. You lift your chin up. You live for the glory of God that God's name may be hallowed, that His will be done, that His kingdom come. You wait for the consummation of the kingdom of Christ and He'll take care of all these things. He knows you need them. He will care for you. Luke 12.32, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12.32, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He looks out and he says, don't be afraid, little wimpy sheep. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. Here's how Peter says it, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Now, believer, do you believe that? That God cares for you? You can believe that you're the only one that cares about the little details of life. Food and clothing and the little necessities. But God cares about all of them. Cast all your anxiety on Him. He's not a God who's far off. He's the God that's with the sparrow. How much more with you? Is there, it is so right for us to pray, Lord, give me these basic necessities because they don't come from me. They don't come from my own strength. Philippians 4.19, Paul reminds the Christians in Philippi, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I wonder how often you doubt God's care for you that if Christ were to meet you, He would say, oh, you of little faith. Do you think that I've quit looking at your life and caring about the small things as well as the big things? Now, our asking, realizing that He's the one who gives, must not cause us to fail to work for food. To work hard. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Or the NASB says, live an undisciplined life. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such uh, persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So yes, we're supposed to use the gifts God's given us, the power God's given us, the health God's given us to work. But then don't get proud. It's not like that power came from you. Your health is a gift to you. Your strength is a gift to us. Now, does this mean that a Christian will never die of starvation? Or never die because they don't have enough clothing and they're stranded in a blizzard? No, it does not mean that. But what it does mean is that God will sustain and care for you throughout the days He is appointed for you. And at the appointed time of death, there's a promise that He'll never leave you or forsake you. God's got a plan for your life. He knows your days before there's ever one of them. And He will sustain you to fulfill God's plan for your life all the way up till you take your last breath. And then with David, we even know that even there, he walks through the valley of the shadow of death with us. So that when it looks like God has given up on us, something happens to the Christian as they're dying. Hope and expectation. Which is the most supernatural thing. And God comes through even on that day. We know from Hebrews that some died, they were destitute, and they were sawn in two, and they were stoned. But they are in the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter of the Bible, which means in their death, their faith was screaming out that God is with them even in that moment. So, glorify God by praying. Give us this day our daily bread, our, this daily bread by depending on Him. In your prayer, have a heart of depending, knowing all things come from Him. Secondly, thank Him. When you pray this prayer rightly, when you have this attitude in your praying, you will be thankful. Our sin, the, the wickedness of our remaining sin, comes forth maybe most clearly in our grumbling, in our complaining. Now listen to me. Believer or non-believer, God has never, has only ever done more for man and not less than what He deserves. So many non-believers experience so much blessing. Yes, judgment is coming. Yes, it's eternal punishment in hell. But people born sinful deserve eternal punishment in hell forever. And God never has wronged you. Ever. 
And when we grumble, we think God has wronged us. When we recognize He's sovereign and we grumble and we're unthankful in our prayers, we've lost perspective. We've zoomed in, we've zoomed down, and we forgot that the present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming. And so all prayer ought to be from a heart of thanksgiving, even when you have need. Even when you're going through difficult times. Why do we pray before we eat? John 6.11, Jesus took the loaves when He had given thanks. He distributed it to those who were seated when He fed the 5,000. He took the loaves, He gave thanks, then He distributed it. Now you might just read over that. But the people who were there were shocked at the way He did it. Why? Because in verse 23 of John 6.23, here's what we read. Other boats the next day came from Tiberias near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. <laughs> you think what he would say is, the boats came to where he fed the 5,000. But what stuck out to them? This is the place where Jesus gave thanks for, to his Father for the food. We know this in the Lord's Supper, don't we? Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. You see, we need Christ so bad because sin is falling short of the glory of God. And we fall short of the glory of God whenever we take for granted any necessity of life. A breath. A candy bar. You know, we might pray at big meals and before we go to bed, but what about all the snacking in between? You see what I mean? Do we need a Savior? Do we not expect that we're owed and forget to have a thankful heart and forget all the blessings? We will look over 10 million blessings in order to complain about four things which actually are working together for our good even though we don't like them. God is good to us. All food is given to men. Now, I was reading MacArthur and he says, you know, God could have gave us brown porridge to sustain us. And we could be sustained and we could be thankful that we're sustained with brown porridge. But look at what He's given us. Just the list of food in the Bible is absolutely breathtaking. The different types of food from plants to nuts to animals, the grains. It's unbelievable. And then He gives us spices to make it taste better. And this is all by the mercy and bounty of God that ought to cause us to worship and love Him and be thankful for Him. So Timothy, warning about false teachers, he warns those who are forbidding marriage and they require abstinence from some foods 
that God created to be received with thanksgiving. God created food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You want to know where food's dangerous to us? When we just eat it. But it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. When we recognize it's a gift from His hand. You know, people say Americans are some of the most entitled people. We're just spoiled. We're just ungrateful. I'm sure it's true. I know it's true in my own heart. Paul says, Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The reason why he puts that in there is I think Paul can imagine Christians whining against God, doubting His goodness, not having proper perspective. This is right after he says, rejoice about everything. Let your reasonableness be made known because the Lord is at hand. Why do you rejoice in the good circumstances and the bad? Because the Lord is at hand. Christ is coming to bring His kingdom. We're to pray with thanksgiving. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Watson, I really want you to lean into this quote, says this, If all be a gift... See the odious ingratitude of men who sin against their giver. God feeds them and they fight against Him. He gives them bread, they give Him affronts. How unworthy is this? Should we not cry shame of Him who had a friend always feeding Him with money and yet He should betray Him and injure Him? Thus ungratefully do sinners deal with God. They not only forget His mercies, but they abuse them. And when I had fed them to the full, they had committed adultery, Jeremiah 5.7. Oh, how horrid it is to sin against a bountiful God, to strike the hands that relieve us. They are like Absalom, who as soon as David... as soon as David, his father, kissed him, plotted treason against him. 2 Samuel 15.10 They are like the mule that kicks against his mother after she has given it milk. Those who sin against their giver and abuse God's royal favors, the mercies of God will come as witnesses against them. If God gives us all, let let His giving excite us to thanksgiving. He is the founder and donor of all blessings and should have all of our acknowledgments. All our gifts come from God and to Him must all our praise return. God has never wronged you. He has never wronged you. We suffer because of sin. 
God in his love has sent Christ to bear your sin, bear the wrath of God. Show you mercy. And as Christians who are sinned against and who still struggle with sin, even the consequences are working together for their good to conform them into the image of Christ. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, let us pray glorifying God as we recognize that we depend on Him for everything. And also that we pray with thanksgiving. And finally, worship Him. When we pray like this, it ought to lead to worship of Him. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs 30. And I promise we're coming to an end here. Agar, son of Jacob, is the one who wrote this. And if you want to look at what a wise prayer looks like, what Jesus means when He tells us uh, to pray, uh, give us each day our daily bread, here's the, a great example. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He says, don't make me rich, then I'll deny you. He's concerned about his worship. Don't give me too much, but provide my basic needs for me. This is how you know the TV preachers promising health, wealth, and prosperity, and you need to name it and claim it, is horrid. Blasphemy in the face of God. Saying, give me luxuries. Give me more. I deserve it. Give me my idol. This is what I really love. The stuff you can give me. That's not how Jesus taught us to pray. In fact, it's give us each day our daily bread. He says, when you pray, pray corporately. For the needs of us all that we have. Why would we want so much that we would be turned away from God and worship the things He has made? This is what happened to Israel. We're kind of out of time. You could read Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 31. For when I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give their fathers, fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them. As God gave them victory over their enemies, they begin to say in their heart, look at what we have done. You see, they've forgotten. They've lost perspective how God gave them manna in the wilderness. How God gave them water when there was no water. 
And as soon as they get some success and they get some comfort, they say, look at what I've done. By my own power and with my own might. Timothy warns, he says, as for the rich in this present age, and by the way, you're all rich in comparison with the world. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. No, be like a child that gets every need from God. Don't be proud, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says, be generous, don't hoard it, lest you might not take hold of that which is truly life. We must glorify God by depending on Him, thanking Him, and worshiping as we see what He has done for us. I want to end with Psalm 23, a psalm you've heard so many times. But see if you can see these truths. This is written by David, whose circumstances are not good. He's fearing death. And rather than say, God's not good, He's forgotten me, He doesn't care for me, he writes this psalm. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why ought you not want? Because the Lord is my shepherd, he says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He feeds and he waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, which is pointing forward to Christ, which is our righteousness. And then He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You appoint my you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. He's saying it's just bountiful. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you get one thing, I want you to know the God that David knew. And this is in bad circumstances. But he knew that God was going to be with him in the trial and that even in death that God was, had promised to be with him. He's going to be with the Lord for all the days to come. He's going to live in his house forever. Father, you are so kind to us. The spiritual bread you give us is Christ. Lord, we know that we cannot live, that our sins cannot be forgiven apart from receiving Christ by faith. By clinging to Him as your only hope of righteousness in this world. 
Father, I pray that everyone here would know that Jesus came and died a substitution, uh, substitutionary death in their place. If they would only receive Him, that they might be saved, that their sin could be taken, that You could provide righteousness for them, that You could provide all the promises of the new covenant, all the promises of the new heavens and the new earth, all to be received by faith. Lord, You are so good. We know that our evil hearts often tempt us to doubt Your goodness. We know that this world that lies to us gets us and tempts us to believe that You're not good and so does Satan just like in the garden. Father, I pray that Your Word would bring sanity to our minds, that it would bring perspective, and that we would thank You, and that we would depend on You, and we'd worship You. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.